Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. The section that we're taking a look at here today is Re'e, which uh, can be translated uh, see, and covers Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26, through chapter 16, verse 17, and we covered Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 55, verse 5, and also we covered John 7, verse 37, through verse 52. And you can see all the previous studies we've done on this, including some deep dives we've done onto the tests for a prophet at halal.info slash p47. So with that said, we have a picture here from, that shows the, the valley between these two mountains there at Shechem, or as modern day, it's, you'll find it on the map as Nabulus. And that shows the two mountains there of Gerizim and Ebal. So the Mount of Blessing, Gerizim, and the Mount of Ebal, or Cursing. And then in the middle is the city of Shechem. So that's the setting of where you see this here today. Now, just as a reorienting of where we, where we are in the book here, we're in this section where the expounding that Moshe is doing on the Ten Commandments, and it stretches from chapter 6 of Deuteronomy through chapter 26, verse 15. So where we're at here today is a section, and a finishing up on a section that covers the first commandment. You'll have no other gods before me. And our section that we're looking at here today is uh, that covers chapter 11. So that section, which talks about the first commandment, really stretches from chapter 6 of Deuteronomy through chapter 11. Now, the chapter 12 covers the second commandment about idolatry and the third commandment about blasphemy or making the name of the Lord, taking it in vain, making it of no effect, various ways you can put that. That stretches through chapters 13 and 14 of Deuteronomy covering the section on false prophets and people who are leading people into idolatry and also on clean and unclean, which is uh, quite interesting that it's grouped here together with this idea of avoiding blasphemy or bringing the name of the Lord down. So, and also, our Torah section here today of Re'e uh, finishes out with expounding upon the fourth commandment or keeping, remembering the Shabbat, guarding the Shabbat, covering verses, chapter 14, verse 22, through chapter 16, verse 17. And in that, you'll see a group together talking about tithe, talking about the Shemitah or the sabbatical year, talking about the Pesach or Passover, Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks, and also Sukkot, all grouped together with that general theme. 
So with that, you're like, okay, these are all grouped together. So what does this all mean here together? So we're going to take a look at some of these aspects uh, at the beginning. First of which, we'll look at in the finishing the elaboration on the first word, have no other gods before me, covering Deuteronomy chapter 11. Now, again, we could take a look back here from a different view. This is a view from the Mount of Blessing from Gerizim, looking over across the valley, across Shechem, or modern-day Nabulus, and looking at Ebal on the other, in other side, or the Mount of Cursing. And this is something that, so you have, as we'll see, expounded here, and in greater detail when we get over to Deuteronomy chapter 27, where it talks about this in really big detail of what the blessings are, what the cursings are, and this separating of the six tribes on one, six tribes on the other. So just a top view of this at the outset of this, this elaboration on the first commandment, what have we covered in this so far? We've seen in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is really a key chapter, a key chapter, because it's one that is covered every day with the, with the Shema, is covered. Hear, O Israel, and continues on. And in our last Torah reading, we saw in chapter 8, that's another pivotal chapter. And we saw that that chapter played a lot into the three temptations of the Mashiach there that are recorded in the Gospels. And about also, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, a pivotal place. And we get an echo of this, what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8 in our section that we're looking at here today. You might have... Re- recalled this phrase that we saw as we were going through this. And it said, I did this to test you. So why was it that you were given manna? Why was it that you were given manna? To to test you, to see if you would follow the instructions of the Lord or if you were going to go into another direction. Well, what did we see that mentioned in context this time around, with the section we're looking at today of Re'e, what was that context mentioned? I did this to test you. Chapter 13, about the test of a prophet. 13, 14, the test of a prophet. So you're going to get false prophets sent to you, and that is there to test you. Which voice are you going to listen to? And how will you know if this is leading you after a different God, if the prophet is leading you after a different God? And we'll, we'll see some of that. We've, we've covered this in a deep dive before. But a key thing to remember is that the warning that comes from Moses these prophecies may come true. They may come true. This prophet may give a prophecy, and the prophecy may come true. So thus, you know, you'll often see, well, I'll test the prophet, and if the prophecy comes true, then you'll know if he's true or not. Well, the thing is, we have a warning that says, no, that's not going to be the acid test. 
of if the prophecy comes true or not. As we have other examples, you might remember in the historical writings that there were false prophets sent to wayward kings of Israel. And they told them things that would happen, including Shaul or Saul. He was sent a false prophet that told him true things that would happen to him, that did happen to him. But he was going after this prophet because what? Heaven shut off, basically cut the cord on him, stopped communicating with him. So what he went after, he was going to try to, as they say today, hack, come up with his prophecy hack and come another way to get answers from heaven a different direction. So these are things that are going to be expounded as we get into the later chapters of Deuteronomy. So we'll see this again, but this is a preview of coming attractions and seen here in the context of approaching this with the commandment related to blasphemy or taking the name of the Lord and bringing it low. Because what is the whole context of these false prophets? They are leading you where? Away. Follow a different God. So they're saying that, okay, throw out what you think you know about God. I'm going to tell you who God really is and then take you off into a different direction. So the warning that we get, and just a preview of things, is that not that what the prophet is saying is true or false, but is it true or false of what they're saying about who God is and what God wants? And again, this is in the context also of how does God say worship happens? How are the ways that you approach God? Thus, if you've got a prophet that's saying something different and taking you in a different direction, watch out not whether the prophecy comes true or not, or how many signs or wonders they perform. Because we've got warnings that come through from the prophets, and you see them in the apostolic writings. The Apostle Paul warns about them. You see them in the book of Revelation. So the Apostle Yochanan warns about them, that these signs and wonders are going to come, and they're going to lead you after a different God. Because people always love a light show. They're like, hey, Give me something spectacular. We, we really don't want to hear or take the time to understand something you're telling us. Just give us a good show. Give us a good show. So, uh, yes, Alex, you have a comment or a question over here? Yes, done. Egypt. Yeah, they, they, you know, and they were a very old and well-known culture. It was a, it was a pecking order. You know, the, the guy who got to heaven really was a guy who had more art and a bigger pyramid, and you had more people praying for you. And if you were a poor guy, you were just, you dumped in a common grave. So it was the whole, the whole how you get to heaven thing. This is a revolutionary idea Yahweh's coming through with. Yeah. So one quick false prophet probably would have knocked them off their perch really easily. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, one of those things that with other with other belief systems, how do you have any idea what your guru or your priest is telling you is true or not? 
You see, even in Israel's history, when they lost the Torah, lost the book of the law in the temple, in God's house, in a back room somewhere, they didn't even know what the word of the Lord was. So when it was read to them, when they found it and brought it out, they were weeping because they're like, we had never heard this before. All we've had up to this point is what the priest told us it was. So imagine hearing, yeah, the priests weren't referring to it because they lost it. They did. Somebody had to find it, bring it back out. Uh, yes, Larry, we have a comment or a question over there. About that? discovered was that, yes. uh, you know, when Paul says, if you receive a teaching that is not what you heard before, don't listen to it. Mm. And in, in orthodoxy, they seem to interpret that something that Paul said before. But it's not what Paul said before. It's what's in the scriptures. It's the yeah, Torah. Different. If you don't you hear something different than what you were taught from the scriptures, don't listen to it. Yeah, a, a, a different news. Different news. Uh, yes, uh, Deborah, you have a comment or a question? Yeah, I have a dear friend that loves the Lord, and um, these um, YouTube prophets, you know, from, from you know, the Sunday Church have you know um, made um, claims that God said stuff about our government, the political government, and personally, you know, I don't know, but I don't believe that to be true because I don't see any evidence in the Bible of the teaching of the Torah or the New Testament where. Um, those kinds of statements are being made um, for me to go back on. I, I could be wrong, but I, I think that um, because, you know, I don't see that in the scripture saying that, you know, um, I know Pharaoh was attacked, but you don't see over and over where um, that, uh, like, Nancy Pelosi may fall down dead and or something is happening with naming people, you know, and this person, he believes that she's a prophet. And, you know, on and on and on. And, you know, my, my thing is, is that, well, what time period, how long do you wait? When, if it doesn't happen in a year or two, is that going to be, I mean, is that person still a prophet? I think there's some confusion about what a prophet is, how it transpires. And I don't really hear much teaching on in depth like that. I think Daniel did. Uh, we had years and years ago, I, I believe. But um, if yeah, you can expound on any of that, I would really appreciate yeah, that's, that's, how do we detect you know, and that's that's why you know. Yeah, go back to this one here. Hello. Dot info slash p forty seven. You go there and you'll see LinkedIn. There, there is when they talk about the tests of a prophet. When we go through in detail what is mentioned in chapters thirteen and fourteen of uh, Deuteronomy. So it is linked in there. We we've, we've gone into great depth in those in previous times. Yes. So that's. That is, we get these particular tests that are in these uh, two chapters. So just taking a look back to uh, where we were at before. Oh, sorry. There we go. So one of the, the things, looking further at chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, one of the things to remember with this, we mentioned this last time in passing, but here's another look under the hood, is that Barach, which is the Hebrew verb that is for to bless, depending on context, can mean bless or curse, because it just means to bow or to bend your knees toward. 
So you were giving um, subservience to something, and that could be to give something that is good or to give something that is bad to those. So you have to know how to distinguish one from the other. And that was a whole part of when we were back in the book of Numbers and going through the account of uh, Balaam or Balaam and his whole thing of where he was commissioned to curse and it was blessing. Well, again, that's the, the thing. The line between blessing and cursing is who is it you're bending your knee toward? And that was like that whole encounter with going through uh, the altars and the offerings and maybe we just offer more offerings and maybe you can get God to curse Israel after you do that. Well, no, you finally have to bend the knee toward the creator of heaven and earth and say what he wants to happen, that is what is actually going to happen. And that's what Bilam finally spills out with his oracle in a blessing, a saying talking about how good are your tents, O Yaakov, because that was the will of heaven. That was the will of the Lord. That was the good that heaven was looking to give to Israel. Not the bad, but the good to pass to Israel. And when Bilam finally woke up to that, he was then the vehicle for that goodness to get communicated to the world. And not only the goodness about what Israel was good, but also what would come through Israel would be good. That scepter that came through in the oracle of Bilam, that scepter held by the Mashiach, the great king, who would become the king of kings. So one of the things also in this, as we look on further, um, let's see here, just take, take a look. Another word that is used for curse beyond uh, barach is uh, kalala. And kalala is a, a verb that means to basically make something appear inconsequential, or as it says here, appear trifling. It's a trifle. It doesn't really matter much to anything, and that is a curse. You will be, instead of just saying you'll be bad, you'll just be nothing. You're, you're worthless. It's not really of any sort of consequence, and that being a, another form of a curse. So that indeed, when we think about the context of this, what is the commandment related to blasphemy? To make the name of the Lord and to take it in vain, to use it in vain, or to make it of nothing, like the wind, just nothing, of no consequence, nothing special, to bring it low, to make it a trifle, to make the reputation of the Lord a trifle. So thus, you can see how the cursing and the blessings, bless, I mean, bless the Lord, to curse the Lord, is wrapped up in blasphemy. This making the Lord into a trifle, nothing, something of very little consequence. So one of the things was we move further on into chapter 12, which is probably where we'll spend 
a good portion of our time today and rope in what we were looking at in our two Haftarot or our parallel passages that we were looking at before is in chapter 12, which is an elaboration really on the second commandment. They're about, you know, do not make an image. Do not make an image of anything that is on, on heaven, above, on the earth, or in the sea or anything under the earth. Don't make anything a representation of it. And we see that from uh, the representation we have in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, and repeated back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So that is... The second commandment, the second word of the ten words that are there. Now, one of the things to, to take a look at, uh, this may be a bit of an eye chart here, to see some various aspects under the hood of this particular section in Deuteronomy chapter 12. One of the gist things you could say, an overarching view, is this, these instructions about taking out and destroying these things that are currently in the land, the land they're going into, is when you start looking at these play on words there in the Hebrew underlying it, you're starting to see a message about destroying the strongholds of the enemy that is enslaving you. And a good example of that, in the phrase there of the Bed uh, Ta'abadun, utterly destroy, utterly destroy these places. Well, the root verb of that is avad. Now, it is what you would call a homonym of a sort because in Hebrew you can have these two letters that can be get pronounced somewhat similar with the aleph and the ayin. Um, and, you know, one looks like the X and one that looks like the Y. The aleph looking like the X and the I ain't looking like a Y, sort of. Now, the interesting thing of the root verb for that utterly destroy, which, again, one of the things that you'll see is a, is a factor in Hebrew when you want to boldface and underline something, you repeat a phrase twice, kind of like Shabbat Shabbaton. Complete rest is how it's often translated. In this case, you've got utterly destroyed, destroy, destroy. So destroy utterly, completely wipe it out. Now, the interesting thing is, is that you also have the, in the same passage, it is that you're destroying the things avad, that the people of the land avad or serve. They're spelled slightly differently, one with an olive, one with an ayin. But when you were to just say it, it would be very difficult unless you knew the context of it to figure out which one it's referring to. So you see that in a lot of passages. We've seen that in Genesis chapter 3, where you've got, you know, Nahash used repeatedly for snake and cunning together, using those things together. 
and having these plays on words together to really communicate a meaning of it. So you're saying destroy that which those people of the land are serving. And also on top of that, you have the, when it talks about just also wiping out these places, the Hamakomot, it's a very interesting play on words as well, because if you were to take off the plural of it, the ot off of it, which makes that plural, you would have hamakom, which is known as the place, which is a euphemism for the tabernacle sanctuary. That is the place. So what do you see in this passage? Wipe out the places and only worship at the place where the Lord will put his name. So don't just worship where... Oh, uh, Danielle have a, has a comment or a question over there. Yes, before I go on further. Yeah, um, right now I'm writing like the book of Judges. Yeah, um, and like I'm at the part where... Well, I'm only on chapter like three, I think. But I'm at the part where like God is punishing them for not obeying their ancestors and for not... Because their ancestors didn't listen to what God said and destroy all the places. And I was just wondering, because um, they said they forsook what their ancestors said. But I was just wondering, like, I feel like, mm, I don't know how to say it, but, like, wouldn't there still be some older, like, some elder people and they can be like, oh, that's not right or something? Because they said, oh, they did not listen to what God said and they did not know of him. Want, like, their parents or their grandparents tell them about what, like, who God was or something? Well, yeah, you bring up the very interesting point of carrying on the legacy from one generation to the next. Now, did the parents actually carry that on? Did the parents carry this on, this message that Moshe was telling them, hey, I'm going to show you the place where you're going to bring everything to. Don't worship just here, there, and under every green tree and in high places, the places where the pagan nations are, you know. Just don't go up to their shrine, remove their shrine, and put the shrine to God there. Don't do that. No, you wipe out those places, and you're just going to have the one place that the Lord is going to show you. Don't just pick a place that looks nice. Wait for the Lord to reveal it. Uh, yes, Alex, uh, you have a comment or a question. But yes, Daniel, when you're, when you're saying that, they, they should have known. But that's one of the things that what do you value and you want to communicate from one generation to the next? Do you actually cherish that and say, this is hugely important. I'm going to make sure the next generation gets that message, which is why in the Shema it says, hey, you talk about this when you rise up, when you lie down, when you're... Teach your children this while you go about your things during the day. Make sure that you teach these words in there. Because, yeah, when you get to a place where you are now facing the question, well, hey, Bob says we just go up to this hill. And, you know, they've been, they've been worshiping up there before we even got here. So that must be a good place. Let's go up there. We'll just kind of, you know, change, change the, the sign on the door, so to speak. Uh, put under new management and then now use it for worshiping the Lord. Well, 
why would we say, hey, that wouldn't be a good idea unless your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents had transmitted this down from one generation to the next? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And you can see that is underlying the, the reasons why these things uh, go wrong. Because you see, like, you probably have already seen that in the book of Judges where it talks about, you know, each man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, we just saw that in this chapter. It says, don't just do what is right in your own eyes in the context of, hey, worshiping wherever these other people have done it. Uh, yes, Alex. Uh, well, this is that Old Testament God that so many Christians and others, you know, have a problem with. But no, but yeah, I, I, that's easy <laughs> to say, but it was a fresh start, okay? Mm. And God actually knows what he's doing, okay? Mm. Um, and I guess it had to be that way. It had to be that way, or you will never get this little thing going of how to worship the one true God, because all anybody was doing was killing kids, worshiping animals, dressing up like animals, burning babies. I mean, this has gone on forever. It's like, okay, done. One yeah. true God. And there were some ultimatums. Oh, he doesn't do it? Kill him. Yeah. Well, one of there, the- There are things worse than death, isn't that what yes. we- so, I mean, for some reason, it had to be there. Yeah. But, but don't and, say it's another god. Yeah, and one of the, the things we've seen earlier when we were just talking about Bilam is that we see historically who he was. And then we see also the oracles that are related to Bilam that you find in archaeology that dug up about him. And we know that he is regularly talked about being in, in communication with the Shadim, or not just Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Shadim. Many of them, many of these destroyers, powerful ones, and drawing upon them. So how do you take ideas that are somewhat similar? I mean, we've seen they've dug up the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is an account of the flood quite different, quite unrealistic, and also talking about a pantheon of deities and this and that and the other, well, what do you do with that? You just have to say, those propagators of that has got to go because you are just creating what you could say, as you say in the, in the trademark world, you're creating market confusion. If you've got many people out there using the same name, that's one of the things that trademark courts weigh when they look at a claim. Is there market confusion? So when you go into Canaan and you say, El Shaddai is here, they're like, which one? Yeah, El is here. Which one? So thus... You're going to say, yeah, like you're saying, we've got to make a clean sweep here to say, okay, we're going to go back to basics, hit the reboot button, and uh, tell world history the way it really is. Yeah, <laughs> how many times? Uh, yeah, so we're going to start here with Jared and then Ann over there. Yes. Uh, Another thing that comes into play with this whole teaching your children is the difference between what we think of as Western culture and Hebrew culture is that Tradition in Hebrew means the exact same copy. 
if you are copying down a Torah scroll and a tittle or a jot is missing, you stop, you fix it, and you start over again. Western tradition, well, well, that's how my mom told me. Well, that's how my, well, that's her, how her mom told me. But if you do that, it's always different. Like it, it changes throughout it's the game of telephone. So, and another thing they do with, to, to help with the, uh, the children specifically is, um, so that way they don't get misled, is they start with the gruesome stuff first. Yes. Today, in Hebrew culture, the first thing that a, uh, that a boy starts learning is Leviticus. So they get thrown into kill all these animals and scatter their blood around and cut them up and put them on the altar and burn them before they go into God made heaven and earth and he made everything and he made the butterflies and he made the trees. If you don't, and, and that's a, a problem that I see with, with American culture in the, Bible, in the Bible thumping belt, you know, in Arkansas, I was surprised by how many young pregnancies there were, especially, especially that all the ones that, how I was raised Baptist, and, you know, mama and dad never taught me about, you know, the hardcore stuff, so I went to go find out by myself, and now I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's a shame. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things that when, when you take a look back to one of the key grounds points of the rot that's come into modern society of the intellectual crisis that seeped over from the uh the 19th century into the um yeah basically into the 18th to the 19th century so 1700s into the 1800s especially in the mid 1800s where you have multiple people uh, culminating with charles darwin came up with the idea that became popularized with the with the phrase you know, nature red with tooth and claw. Because, you know, if you go around singing the hymn, all, all creatures bright and beautiful, well, then you got someone who propagates and says, well, no, it's not that way. Look out there. Nature is red with tooth and claw. So who are you then going to believe? Someone who's just telling you, yes, this is the way that God originally created it. Or you look out and say, this is the way it is now. But the point is, is that you say, why is it the way it is now? And the word actually tells us why it is the way it is now. It's not a pretty story. It's an ugly story. But it is the true story. And it's actually the whole reason why the whole rest, why Israel was necessary, why the Mashiach is necessary, and all of that comes into necessary because of the bad news that is out there. And the bad news is the wedge item that the adversary uses to get in, to see doubt, to create confusion, to cause division, etc. Um, yeah, Anne, did you uh, still have a comment or a question? And then Deborah. Well, the thing is, in my in my mind now, this was to be when you go in the land, you are to destroy the strongholds of the enemy who enslaves you. When you go into the land, okay, well, we're in a land that's full of these different idols and different religions, and, and some, someone could easily, well, say easily, but be shoved to one leftist side or rightist side, whatever you want to call, and go off and say, well, this is a mosque here. I'm going to just eliminate it because God says destroy the strongholds of the enemy who enslaves you. And those people are enslaved, but I'm not. Mm. I'm, 
I'm a son of the living God or a daughter of the living God. So, so you know, you got the, you've got the young man that goes into the abortion clinic and kills the doctor. Right. So that's my point, you know, like, they can pervert the word, or is it perverted, or is, is, yeah, God, and, is and, God really Indeed, and in, in, okay. in that particular case, which is why as we get on further into Deuteronomy, you'll see the exact laws that say of vigilantism, no. In fact, we even saw that in the passage there of Deuteronomy 13, 14. Investigate thoroughly. Figure it out if it is indeed so. So that means not just Jim just goes and does what he wants to do and thinks he's going to be the vengeance of the Lord. No. You bring it into the community. You have a thorough inquiry. You figure out what you're doing, and you don't exceed your authority to do whatever you're going to do. Yes. <laughs> no one respects the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. Okay, so the question is, for me, I always go back as I think of kings, or even some of this is that um, this all had to, these gods, I mean, God had given the land to the beginning of, you know, the first is Adam and Eve, and then the next generation, next generation, and then uh, I guess in the Tower of Babel, is the beginning of all these foreign gods. That's when they were born, right? I mean, because, I mean, I always think of their origin, like the beginning of these gods, and then you come in and God's taking the land away from them, he Come says. It goes back even he, further than that. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. yeah. To well, the trees. Trees of knowledge. Oh, the two trees. So yes. Satan perverted. So he began with his own, his own world religion then, right? So he came with his religion, yeah, and then the, you could choose. He started with the world population of two. I know, jeez. Yes. And then, you know, I started thinking about how um, he goes in and, you know, it's a tragic thing to go in and have to kill every single person, women, children, and I, yeah. you know, I mean. Which is why it's not our call. Right. So, I mean, so. now you can't go do that. I mean, people think, well, we go, yeah. you know, it's, it's complicated and you have wounded people from generation to generation. Yes. And these, that religion A sounds better than B. So, I mean, when you have a, a buffet per se, you know, you the go buffet. come to church and you got a buffet, you're going to, you're going to go for what appeals to you, you know, and God has rules and laws. Well, gee, that's complicated. I, I, I ought to not eat that today, you know? Mm. In interesting point. Yes. Mm. Yes, Larry, uh, go ahead, please. <clears throat> well, you know, there's a, there was a group a ways back. They figured out a way. Let's get it all. because everybody on the same page here. We got all these things, and we'll call it universal. And you know what the other name for that is? Yes, confusion. Catholic. Yes. Well, you, you also have like the universalist. You know, you uh, will then just try to bring everything together. Take a little bit of here, take a little bit of there, kind of blend it all together. And yeah, that doesn't doesn't work either. So. Indeed. Oh, uh, yes, Danielle, go ahead, please. Um, also, going off what um, Jared was saying, yes. I'm also like with tradition, like, like also like you were saying, if you don't pass it down, then they're going to come up with their own reasoning. Mm -hmm. So that is why they started to worship the other gods, because they saw that there's no other option, pretty much. They're like, there's no other way that I could, um, that that they didn't know of God. 
Like they knew of him, but they didn't know him. Like they didn't have a relationship with them. So they were like, oh, like at least this is someone I can see. This is a God I can see, I could touch. So I will follow this God instead of. And I was also really cool when I was reading Judges how he was really merciful to them. Like how when he was sent, like when he was sending them to attack the the Israelites, he was like, I'm going to send the, the ones into battle who have never been into battle so they can become stronger. And it was mm. like, wow, that's a little, that's a little rough. But I thought like, it just shows how merciful God is really like, um, like yeah. even though they still sinned, like when I was reading that, I was like, it shows how much of a good father he is. Like fathers, like even if their children keep doing bad stuff, they will do things, he'll, they, the fathers will do things that instead of like just yelling at them, he'll find a way to make them stop doing that bad thing and also encourage them not to do it again. Yeah. Instead of just saying like, and he gives them reasonings like that's not okay. And I just really like that. Yeah. And what, what approach are you taking toward God? Are you approaching him arrogantly and just saying, well, I hear what you're going to say, but I'm going to push it aside. Or is it just that you've been, kept in ignorance from one generation to the next and then you just don't know what you don't know but then only the lord knows how you're going to react when you actually hear that are is your reaction going to be like those who heard the words of the lord spoken and were weeping and said oh my goodness what have we lost what have we forgotten or are we going to be the ones like the prophet Yeshiyahu says, you know, all those words you say, they're just tzav tzav, kav kav, you know, blah, 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 line upon line, just nonsense. And we're, we're just not even going to listen to those things anymore. Uh, yes, Rose, go yes, ahead, please. I hail the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who put it into the heart of man to invent the printing press so that the word of God could go out because back then only the priest had had the law so now we have it in print right here and there is no excuse anyone have everyone has access access to the word of god today yeah especially now in the electronic world where you got it pretty much instantaneous around the, around the planet so yeah quite quite amazing yes uh Lurilla, you have a comment or a question over there my father was known as a rebel. Mm. He was um, pretty much self-educated. He spent eight years in a hospital. So he <clears throat> was able to get reference books and things like that and make decisions and, and those kinds of things. Um, he had a mother who was very supportive of him, uh, brought him all kinds of theological books, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. So when he went to college and they were talking about this uh, theory of evolution, Mm -hmm. um, my father had to do a master's thesis, and he compared the theory of creation to the theory of evolution. And he had every college professor, whether they were in the natural sciences department or not, come and listen because they just thought this guy was nuts. Mm -hmm. And he proved that Darwin's theory aligned with um, how, how creation was happening he used the same thing and he said at the very end of the whole deal he showed the parallels to the whole thing 
He says, now the difference between this is that creation, the, the story of creation at this point he was calling it, um, the author never recanted. However, Darwin has recanted this theory. Mm. So that yeah. to say, let's study. Yeah. Let's dig deep, find out what the, what the opposition is, and really do some critical thinking skills, which I know they don't teach anymore, but yeah. that's what we need to do. Yeah, you, you bring up a very interesting point. I know that's been a subject of controversy in recent years because that's gone back and forth as to people who uh, knew him well in the time of his death and his, his children and whatnot, whether he actually recanted or not, that still open for debate on that. You know, however, one of the things that when we talk about the word of God, that is which is revealed and passed from one generation to the next, the more and more we get into the computer world, we've talked about this on a number of occasions, and Larry is always bringing this up when you talk about programming, which is the world that he comes from, is that the world of communication, of Word, sender, codex, receiver, sender, codex, medium, decodex, receiver. Those sorts of things, just like when you pick up whatever it has as written word on it, you look at it, you know, you have, you are the receiver. You look at this, you are looking at things here. You have a codex and you have a way to decipher whatever it is that's written here whether it's in the bible or wherever and it can communicate from one person to the other that is how you see the world the created world the biological systems and even the non-biological systems the chemical world operates the same way so what you're saying is is this is a world that is better explained by a sender, codex, book, word, and receiver. Not of a receiver with nothing before it. That is how you would say in the spontaneous generation world, you just, it just happens, comes into place because of whatever it is that makes it go into place. Something magical that makes it just snap into order. That's not the world that we actually see. It's not the world we see in computing, computer programming, engineering, biology, che chemistry. It doesn't work that way. It's not willy-nilly changing on a rim from one thing to the other. Chemical equations, as you better understand them, they work. Your catalysts work the same way as they did 100 years ago to they do now. I mean, they better preparations for them and stuff like that but this principles will work one way or the other you know the push pull and you do a calculation like this on this planet and you can get people to the moon you can get spacecraft to mars to jupiter to saturn to pluto to neptune to uranus you can get them out there you can get them around the sun you can park them in orbit in places where there's a gravitational eddy where you can then park something out there, which is where we got our big James, um, James Webb telescope out there, which is parked. That's not just people kind of guessed. Well, maybe we'll put something in there. Maybe it'll work. Maybe we don't. No. 
that's the way things work here works out there. That's because it is a world based upon sender, codex, receiver. Just like what we have in the Word of God and just like what we have in the various things of the world. So which gets us back to our topic here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. What is the message of all this? There's market confusion there in the land of Canaan. So many things claiming to be El, claiming to be Shaddai. So what are you going to do with all that? Well, you can't keep around those reminders of things that are just not true. So you've got to take out those reminders. Now that works from the national scale of God trying to hit the reset button for the world with bringing Israel into the promised land, but it also works with us. You know, we see each one of us have our own Passover, our own exodus out of our own house of bondage as we go through. Well, when we get to our own place of rest, where we go to where we find rest, what do we do with those reminders, the things, the lords that lorded over us before? What do we do with those things, those masters that were there before? You've got to get rid of those masters, those reminders of the other masters of time before. So you know, we mentioned this on previous occasions. You know, if you talk to people who have certain uh, particular weaknesses and they get in with groups that are really designed to battle against those particular weaknesses, what do you do? You got to cut those ties to those masters, those lords. There's those balim, those masters that are over the top of you. Because just like there was one Baal after another Baal after another Baal in the land, so too each of us have our own Baal, our own balim that are masters over us. And we've got to destroy those particular high places that are within us to say and set up the place which is where we are uh, going into next because one of the things that uh, has been noted with this particular chapter 12 is there are a lot of echoes between this and a particular pivotal point in Israel's history right at the beginning you know the sacrifice of Yitzhak or near sacrifice you might say we'll take a look at that as we go on further here but when we talk about destroying strongholds a passage here from the Apostle Paul in 2nd Corinthians chapter 10 verses 2 through 6 I ask that when I'm present I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
We are destroying speculations, every lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience wherever your obedience, uh, whenever your obedience is complete. So in a sense, you see that this, remember, is the second letter to Corinth to the congregation there at Corinth. You might remember the first letter. <laughs> the first letter with its particular bugaboo, uh, more than just a bugaboo, that Corinth was having in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, where they had one of their congregation who uh, was having dalliances with a very close <laughs> um, relative by marriage. And um, what was that? <laughs> yes so one of those one of those key things that you have in there is that they were tolerating this and they were they were applauding their tolerance and you see an echo of that first uh, corinthians chapter 5 in romans chapter 1 remember how paul ends that by saying that these people not only do this but they applaud other people who are doing the same so that is what the congregation in Corinth was doing. They were tolerating the situation. See, look how we enlightened we are by tolerating this in our congregation. Because, you know, God has mercy. God has grace. So we are going to tolerate this into our congregation. Well, Paul's response is, is that, you know, for his sake and yours, you need to send him out send him out to save him so that he will get the message and everyone else there will get the message that the, this is unbelievably toxic to not only him but also all of you and everybody who's watching because paul says hey not even the unbelievers tolerate this kind of behavior and what are they going to think seeing this going on in your congregation so then you see 2 Corinthians, which is what we're reading here, is that he's saying, yeah, the first letter, that was rough. That was, that was pretty rough, what I said there. But why did it have to be rough? Because number one, had, had to be dealt with, but the stakes were unbelievably high. Because you think, remember, we've talked about this on previous occasions, but Corinth was... You know, we think many things about San Francisco, but Corinth was like San Francisco in, in, or, or worse. It was a port city. It was very um, accepting of all kinds of behavior, <laughs> to put it very lightly, uh, all kinds of things in Corinth. They were extremely accepting of everything. And for Paul to say, hey, what's going on in your congregation with even flabbergast Corinth? That's, that's saying a lot. Say, um, yeah, for the sake of you as a beachhead of the kingdom of God in Corinth, uh, we got we to gotta take something pretty drastic here. Now, on a similar thing, you see the same thing going on with Israel. Israel is God's beachhead in the world going to be smack dab right into a giant highway hub. You know, you think of like, if you ever traveled in the East Bay, 
They call it the maze. You've got all those interstates that come together to go over the Bay Bridge. Which it's, it's a maze. Well, that is like what that intersection there of all those junctions and interchanges of various interstates and highways together is like what Israel was for the ancient world of that particular time period. The whole ancient Near East had various highways that were going down and through what we call the Holy Land or the Promised Land. That was God's beachhead in the world to say, hey, this whole way of life and the way things are going with their beliefs and what they, where they're going, that's got to change. So he smack dab first Abraham and then Israel smack dab right in the middle of that and said, yep, this is where we're, where we're going to go in there. This is our D-Day right here into the stronghold of the enemy. Uh, yes, uh, Jared, go ahead, please. Oh, hi, Isaiah. All right. Um, <clears throat> I, just made it, I, I just now realized if, if Corinth was so deviant to the point where something that as well if Corinth was so deviant why wasn't it destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah mm. and, and you're good now the and the difference is the church the synagogue the group the believers in Corinth were a lot more successful than Lot was So when people start starting to compare, you know, the United States with, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah saying, well, you know, God's just going to destroy us all. Mm, be careful. You might be the reason God's holding off. But if, and a lot of times if you start, you know, running your mouth off about, well, destruction is going to come, it might, it, it might come. Mm. People say that about us all the time. But the reason that I think the United States is still here that's to some point are groups like these groups like safe haven farms like messiah west coast like you know our rudy fellowship out in arkansas it's the so it it obedience goes a long way for the sake of a nation yeah and you actually bring up a very interesting point because that was one thing that was said of corinth and some other congregations where it was revealed to paul and the other apostles as they were making those trips in there where, you know, heaven was saying, hey, I've got many people in this city. You've got to go. You got to go. And, you know, as bad as it is, you got to go. Uh, yes, Rose, uh, please go ahead. Encouraged, uh, even some of the worldly churches today. I grew up in the Methodist church. Uh, that's where my folks took me to church. And I just seen on the news the other day that it's a very, very large congregation around the world. Uh, they split. They divided because half the church wanted to celebrate uh, the things that are going on in the world today. And the other half said, no, God said, you know, no. And so uh, it's encouraging uh, that there are churches that the Lutheran church years ago split up. I mean. Even though they don't have all their ducks in a row, so to speak, they still see that the word of God, you know, the things that you shouldn't be doing or celebrating. And so uh, it's encouraging to see that the Sunday churches, you know, are listening to God and, and not uh, putting up with, with some of the stuff that, that other people, I mean, to see a, 
a flag outside a church celebrating certain lifestyles is it's so despicable when mm. when that beautiful that beautiful beautiful sign god gave to us as a sign that he would never flood the earth again you know they have uh they've turned it into something just ugly mm-hmm. well, it, it's encouraging to know that uh there are churches out there that are that are you know trying to obey god mm. yes definitely so Yes, uh, Deborah, you have a comment or a question? Uh, yeah, I'm really curious to know that, um, and here I even often thought, if I was in a relationship and I was of the congregant here, would someone come and talk to me if I was in, having sexual relations with somebody? The churches nowadays, and I'm a single, I can speak from that. When I was in the beginning you know, of the church, you know, I was at the Sunday church. I mean, nobody, I mean, if, I guess it's don't ask, don't tell, but. Um, my thought is, is that would a pastor be willing to go and at, call somebody out who's in sexual immorality, not just gay people, because it seems like that seems like what, you know, and I've told that someone else, I said, you know, people living together is no different. God does not look upon the gay person where if I'm in having, if I'm in a relationship sexually active with somebody, I'm no different than him. So, you know, people are cohabitating and living together without being married and they i would believe that their church is just as guilty of being uh you know it's not it's not just like riding on the tell you know the, just not the gay people there's a yeah. lot of things that i think that well, we if, have to start to bring if, out yeah if if you in, indeed you know the leadership are indeed aware of what the situation is yeah and whether something happens because one of the things that 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 can happen is uh, like a situation like um, in Acts chapter fifteen, where you you know you see that uh, <laughs> one of the things that's mentioned in there is that you have basically the four things for new believers, and as it goes on into into verse twenty one, and it says because uh, Moses is preached every Shabbat, meaning they're reading the word every Shabbat, so the if if they are truly being drawn by god and they are truly seeking him when it gets around and the torah is speaking to them and they are being drawn they will know that the torah is speaking to them and they will say okay well we we need to turn the situation around if we are living like in a in a different way and something that is you know, not something that is going to really forward the kingdom of God, then that situation has got to change. So that's, that's one of the things. But at that point, if you hear about it, no matter what your issue is, if you hear the word of God speaking to you and you don't do something about it, then you really have to really wonder what's going on at the heart. But we on the outside have to really be careful on saying, hey, look, the Lord has spoken to you. Get with the program. And that is one of the most delicate things that we as believers have to accomplish because one of the things is that we don't know where God is with someone on any particular thing. Now, rebellion against the word of God, that's something different. But where god is with calling someone back in that's in a completely different realm 
And so, you know, I've seen it before where people have, you know, the word has spoken to them and the spirit of God has spoken and gotten through and they say, okay, well, that way of life has got to change. And they turn around and just fine. So what do you say at that point? Ha, told you so. No. You say, praise God that that's just like I was saved from my uh, ickiness, so somebody else was saved from their ickiness and called into the kingdom of God. So thus, mercy extended to someone else, including me. And so praise God that that's happened. But yes, when you have a congregation that it becomes obvious to everybody what's going on and you're still not saying, uh, perhaps maybe there's something you need to look at in the word. Maybe you haven't seen that before. And then something doesn't happen beyond that. Then the example of Israel and of Paul there with the congregation of Corinth is something that you're like, okay, that's what we have to deal with. But the, but the, the question is, is that are you seeing that you have these pillars, these things that are stood up in your presence, these strongholds, these forces, these armies of the adversary in your midst, and are you dealing with them wherever they may be, either in your own life, in your own congregation, etc.? So moving on with this a bit more here in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, one of the things that... You see in there in uh, verses 5 and 13, 14, it says, But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. And then later on down in verses 13 and 14, Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. So again, places, the places versus the place. So are you just going to pick any particular place or are you going to say, what is the Lord really choosing to do? Because if you follow the Lord's leading, what then is that not going to do? You're not going to christen or baptize something from another pagan practice and just say, okay, well, we've now baptized that into the family of God, and have now said, okay, we're going to take that over for, from the adversary. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that you see some sages have seen over hundreds of years is that there is a parallel between Deuteronomy chapter 12 and the offering of Isaac. They're recorded in the first 14 chapters of... <laughs> verses, 14 verses of Genesis 22. And that calling, you see that Abraham is called to offer his son, his only son. And thus you see there are so many parallels with this particular passage because they see that he is called and he's going to see this place from a distance and he will be shown the place where he is going to go. And, you know, the people are looking and saying, well, this is where that tradition has come down, that the place where the temple of God was put there in Jerusalem is the same place where Abraham offered Isaac. And then that 
ram was substituted for Isaac there on the mountain. It comes from the same words that are used in these two passages, Genesis 22 and Deuteronomy chapter 12, both together. And you see that there with, with the, you could say, the punchline of that passage in Genesis 22 in verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or Yahweh Yirai, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Or another way you could say it, since it is the same verb that's used for where we get the title of our Torah passage today, Yira, it could say, the Lord will provide or the Lord will be seen. The Lord will, will be seen in a particular place. So thus, this is something that is seen as a hugely significant connection between these two places where the Lord would put his name fully there in Jerusalem and where Isaac was called to be offered, but not offered but yet a substitute was provided for him. The ram would be provided, and the Lord would be seen in this particular passage. So as we go on, we see also the admonition in the end of Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses, um, near the ending part of it in verses 29 through 31, do not inquire after them as God, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? And we see that in particular, when you're talking about this second commandment, the second commandment, do not make any idols, don't make any images. The first image that God ever made was what? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Made man. Mankind, male and female, in the image of God, he made them. That is the image of God on earth, is in mankind. So you see that show up at the time of the flood, where it's talking about, yeah, you don't uh, murder. You don't murder. Because why? You are destroying the image of God. You're destroying the image of God. And then you see also, not only connecting the image of God, but also the blood, life in the blood. So you've got these multiple layers of things. The image of God put in people, in all of things, that in all where life is, the nefesh chayim, or the, the things that have the breath of life in them. Those, one characteristic is the life being in the blood. And very easy to see because you open up <laughs> you open up an artery and uh, if you don't deal with that issue what happens yeah you lose all of that life liquid and then what happens you're dead so when that life liquid goes out you're dead so very easy to communicate life being in the blood there and that symbol of it is like life is coursing through the body. So thus, when we are talking about in Leviticus and we saw about the offerings of blood, it kept getting the reminder again and again and again. Life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. You've got to pour the 
pour the blood out onto the ground, as it was saying, because you are offering up the life of something. So you see that this is something that is maximized when you get down through the prophecies of the Mashiach. This is that you would see that this would be someone who was coming in, the word made flesh, and then also that the life liquid of the word made flesh would be hugely connected as the substitute for the people on the planet who would want to trust in the way that heaven is going with this. So thus we get into a passage in the Gospels that is hugely connected with what we've been looking at for the past couple of Torah portions. It touches on Deuteronomy chapter 8 and also here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And that is over in John chapter 7. And John chapter 7, it starts out with this... Um, starts out really in verse 37 of John chapter 7. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, now, again, the context of this is Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. So the last great day of the feast is what, Jared? What he said, yeah. <laughs> the last, the seventh day of the feast. You get the, um, the great, or you've got the, the great Hosanna that comes in the last day of the feast. So, and the ceremonies that came in in that intertestamental period with the water pouring that came in to be a, a part in conjunction with this. The traditions that weren't originally in the Torah, but you see them showing up in the intertestamental documents and recorded there in the Gospels. And then later on into the rabbinical writings referring to these particular ceremonies that were going on during Sukkot. So that's the context here. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. That should ring your bell to the Haftarah portion we just read in Isaiah chapter 54 and beginning part of 55. Talked about just this. Uh, Jared, this is John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. So we just read verses 37 through 39. So that ties in with what we saw in talking about the um, servant prophecies there in Isaiah chapter 54 and 55. So continuing on in verse 40 of John chapter 7. Some of the people therefore when they heard these words were saying this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying this is the Mashiach. So others were saying surely the Mashiach is not going to come from Galilee is he? Has not the scripture said that Mashiach comes from the descendants of David and from Beit Lechem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to him, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Well, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. 
The Pedrashim then answered him and said, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pedrashim has believed in him, has he? But the crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And so Nicodemus, who came to him, said, uh, Before being one of them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And he answered him, You are not also from the Galil, are you? Search, for no prophet arises out of the Galil, except the one that was talked about about, uh, coming from uh, Zebulun, yes, Uh, and the great light shining out there in what is at that time called the Galil. But if you scroll the tape back even further into John chapter 6, so that's talking about the waters of life coming out. So Isaiah 54, 55, John chapter 6. What is that talking about? Bread from heaven, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Does that remind you of anything? Bread from heaven, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Deuteronomy chapter 12. About you do not eat something with the blood still in it. No, you pour it out because life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. And there is only then one sort of thing that has any sort of life that covers anything. And if you remember, we're getting to that season again, coming up into the seventh month of Israel's history. Yom HaKippurim, or Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And there is a certain blood that goes in, and it covers sins, transgressions, iniquities, especially iniquities, because that is something that when you look at the Torah offerings, there's unintentional sins transgressions that are covered but not iniquity yet that is what the promise there in the prophets prophet yamariyahu jeremiah chapter 31 the new covenant prophecy verses 31 through 34 that he was going to remember iniquities no more and remove them they would be removed the ultimate yom kippur offering the ultimate blood covering the, the blood that when it poured out brings life, even with the death of that which gave the blood. So thus what you're seeing here, and you can see the reactions of the people when they were hearing him talk, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Well, if you take that back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, that's a big no-no, especially of people. <laughs> Yeah, of a person saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Well, if you were to then take that back to, well, what is the pattern that we've heard about before? That would take you back into the Torah, into this particular passage where it was talking about. And both in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and in Deuteronomy chapter 12, both of them are which are saying, hey, this was done as a test to see and as you go on and you see in chapters 13 and 14 of deuteronomy there is going to be one that is going to come and say but then when we get to deuteronomy 18 we're going to say 
Well, there is going to be one to come and say a prophet, but it'll be like me, like Moshe, like one who spoke with God like a friend face to face. Him you believe. These other charlatans that come along, even if they do fancy tricks, parlor tricks, even predict the future and it comes true, but they tell you to go after some other God, something else, mix in something that sounds like a good practice into your worship of God. No, that's not someone sent from God, speaking from God. So thus, when we look at this, uh, this is an incredibly exciting thing because thus we can sort of see what is underneath the hood, so to speak, of the Gospel of John when he's talking about this to an audience that knew the Torah well. I would say, okay, what is this message that's coming? Eat my flesh, drink my blood, bread that came down from heaven. To an audience that knew Devarim, knew Deuteronomy, this was a decision point. Is this truly someone, a prophet sent from God, someone speaking for God? Or is it someone leading you after a different God? So that is one of the great lessons that we have from this particular passage here today. Any last thoughts as we uh, close things out here? Uh, yes, Larry, uh, please go ahead. While we're talking about this, that about that memory uh, several years ago when the uh, those two big Buddhist statues over there in oh Afghanistan, Afghanistan they blew them up when they blew them up and the whole world was incensed about that yes but yet they were really doing what what god was telling us to do in the torah yeah and they're supposed to be our biggest adversaries really as far as christians or muslims mm -hmm. are concerned it was like the taliban or somebody that, a precursor to the taliban yeah it was it was it was the taliban it was the taliban yes and so they're supposed to be our our enemies and yet they were doing more like more what we find in the torah than than we were doing, which was saying, look at these beautiful statues over here, and yeah. let's protect them, you know? Yeah, and you, you bring up a very interesting point, because when you think of uh, some key witnesses that are, uh, that are saying things that are, you know, come true to a certain degree, etc., um, that is one, Islam is one of those key aspects of that, because you have large sections of the Quran which are identical to the, what you actually see in the accounts. There are some accounts that are quite different from what you see in the Bible, but there are other accounts that are very close and instructions that are very close to what you see in the Torah. You've got some other belief systems that have whole huge sections of the King James Bible lifted right out from them and plopped right into their scriptures. And those are witnesses there then would say, whoa, well, this sounds like what I see in the Word. In fact, it is exactly what you see in the Word with some big discrepancies in there. But then when you see that big test, one of those key tests that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 13, is that leading you after a different God? Yes, 
it is a different God. Sounds very close, but it is actually different. Actually different. So thus, these are warnings here that the Torah is essential as the rock upon which everything is built. To understand the prophets, you must understand the Torah. To understand the Gospels, you must understand the Torah and the prophets. To understand the apostolic writings, you must understand the Gospels, the prophets, and the Torah and the writings. You must understand all of those things because if you don't, it is like you know, the old adage of a building that it starts with the, with the second floor. And you're like, how can you start a building with the second floor? That just doesn't work. Well, if you take out the first floor, what's the second floor going to sit on? <laughs> yeah, it's going to come crashing down. It has no foundation. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.